Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard County Community College. And those of you who are listening, if you hear some legal opinions about things, recognize they do not apply to your individual legal needs. If you have some legal difficulty, it is imperative that you get legal advice from a competent professional. I'm pleased to announce that we have a returning guest. I believe he was on about a year ago. It's Judge Jeffrey Paul Russell. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you, Bob. Nice to be here. We have a whole host. I'll preface my remarks with uh, that there are personal to me and have nothing to do with my position uh, with the District of Columbia government. Very good, very good. If you could, just for the ladies and gentlemen of the audience, review kind of what it is you do and how it came about. I'm uh, an administrative law judge uh, in the Department of Employment Services. We handle contested workers' compensation claims. Uh, There are two levels in our agency. There's the hearings level. Uh, I used to do those. I used to be a judge in the hearings level. And uh, starting in 2005, there was a compensation review board was created to become the internal appellate process or to review uh, decisions issued by the judges from the formal hearings. Um, it's It's the function that used to be carried out by the director of the department, but the city council decided that they would prefer to have a, a board of, of attorneys and judges do review the decisions rather than the director. So since 2005, the Compensation Review Board, of which I'm a member, was created, and we do, and we review those cases. Our case, our decisions are appealable to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals. Okay. So for a while there, you were a judge who was doing hearings with litigants in them and lawyers and that sort of thing. And I gather now you are reviewing what transpires at those hearings to make sure that they have been done properly. That's correct. We try our best. Okay. And you've been doing workers' compensation law both as a judge and as a lawyer for a great many years. Isn't that correct? Oh, yeah. Well, for I was a trial attorney for 18 years before I became a judge here. So... And I've been doing workers' compensation work on one level or another for my entire career. So it's basically been about 35 years. Very impressive. Uh, just a couple of things that I wanted to drop in. Last time we discussed at some length the origin of the workers' compensation system. And just for practical purposes, one of the things I experience as a practitioner is that people come to me periodically with cases both in the district and in Maryland, and they say things like, oh, I've filed my claim, I'm okay, and I find subsequently that they've been being paid benefits, but there is no sort of claim that has been filed with any court or, or workers' compensation commissioner or anything of that nature. What do you have to say about the need to actually file a claim? Well, it's absolutely essential that you file a claim because if you don't file a claim in a timely fashion, it's quite possible that uh, your claim will be barred. You won't be able to bring it. It depends on circumstances and in some cases, such as you mentioned, where if they've been being paid benefits voluntarily, a late filing of a claim can be excused if it's determined that somehow the employer misled uh, the claimant into thinking that they didn't need to file anything. But you absolutely should file a claim with whatever 
uh, either in Maryland, the Workers' Compensation Commission, or in the District of Columbia with the Office of Workers' Compensation. So just specifically with respect to the, respect to the district, is that something that you have to actually hand file something or you can do it online or how, how is that done typically? Right now, it's, you can't do it online, but we are actually in the process of setting up an electronic filing system, which we hope to have up and running in a little less than a year. What's supposed to happen in the District of Columbia is the obligation is on the employer to notify, to notify the Office of Workers' Compensation once they have knowledge of a work injury by filing a form with the, with the Office of Workers' Compensation. And then they're supposed to voluntarily start paying benefit. And the claim, the form that they file with the Office of Workers' Compensation is also sent to the claimant or the employee who's been injured. And it, on it, it has a, you know, a, a list of the claimant's rights uh, and, and obligations. And how, if the employer does not send the claimant or the employee that document, the time limit for filing their claim doesn't start to run until they do send it. So, but it does. But the, that document also t- is supposed to tell the claimant or the employer employee that they should file a claim with, with the Office of Workers' Compensation within a certain period of time. So it sounds as though it is in the interests of both the injured person and their employer to file the necessary forms in the District of Columbia in a timely manner. That's right. The uh, and and the the. Uh, Obligation is on the employer to notify the claimant of that, and until the note, until the claimant is notified of that by the employer, the time limit doesn't start to run. So, just on a hypothetical basis, if I were injured in the District of Columbia tomorrow and my employer did not file the appropriate form, could I wait twenty years to file my claim? Well, that, that's been a, it's a situation I've never seen before, and I'd, if that case came before me, I don't know how I'd rule there could be some equitable reasons why an employer should not be held responsible for a 20-year-old claim. Sure. But uh, in theory, uh, that, that's a possibility. Okay. Okay. Well, it sounds as though people need to be attentive to their rights on the front end, and they're more likely to get greater benefits out of it. That's correct, and everything will, and they'll get benefits sooner, and they'll get them if there are disputes that get that arise, they'll be resolved sooner. So, as an employee, if I am injured at work, I presume that the first thing I'm supposed to do is make sure my supervisor is cognizant of the fact I was hurt. That's absolutely the first thing you should do because that's that's what triggers the employer's obligation to file what's called an employer's first report, which is this document that I was talking about. So I'm hurt at work. I notify my supervisor. Presumably, somehow, I will then learn that there's a form I'm supposed to file with the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. Yes, and you will learn that when the employer sends you the document that that they are also filing with the Office of Workers' Compensation. Okay. So then what do I do about going about getting medical treatment? Well, you get to – in the District of Columbia, you get to select your, your managing physician. But once you've made a selection, and there are many cases as to what constitutes selection, then in order to change to a new doctor, if, for example, you're not satisfied with the the, the medical care you're getting, you file a request, again, in the Office of Workers' Compensation to change physicians. And you you go to an informal conference, and the the claims examiner makes a, a recommendation 
if, if it can't be worked out voluntarily, makes a recommendation, and if ne neither party rejects that recommendation, it becomes an order, and you get to, and you either get to change positions or not change positions, depending upon what the recommendation was. If the recommendation is not to allow the change of positions, or if the recommendation is to allow the change of positions, either party can request a formal hearing. I am sorry, neither party, it's unusual. That is one area in which you do not get a formal hearing. Okay. That, that decision would have to be appealed directly to us, CRB. The District of Columbia Court of Appeals ruled several years ago in a case called Renard that parties are, that for some, for, in some situations, there are some issues in workers' compensation that you're not entitled to get a formal hearing on, and change of physicians happens to be one of them. I've never really agreed with it, that, that, decision, that decision, but uh, that's been the law for several years now. That, so that's one thing you do not get a hearing on, is changing physicians. That's a decision that gets made by the Office of Workers' Compensation. It can't be arbitrary and capricious, and that decision is appealable to the CRB, and we can review it and determine whether or not it's a, it's a legally sound decision. Now, is that something that you've seen with some regularity, or is that an unusual circumstance? We, yeah, it's I just had one. I just issued a decision on such a case the day before yesterday. Okay. So see them, see them quite regularly, actually. Typically, it's not, it, it doesn't arise out in most cases because in most cases, the employer, if there's, there's a legitimate reason to change positions, won't oppose it. Sure. And in most cases, if uh, the decision, if the decision is adverse to the employer about changing positions, they're not, they're not going to fight it. The people that tend to appeal are the, are the claimants if uh, they if their request is denied. Okay. And we we have frequently overturned the denials. So. So what are the typical reasons that are advanced for getting a new doctor? Well, they generally. <laughs> Well, you see a lot, some cases, the claimant just isn't satisfied with the medical care because they're not getting better. Sure. And that uh, seems like a legitimate reason to me. It does seem like a legitimate reason. Now, the other, other reasons that get advanced is the claimant sometimes will take the position, or the employees will sometimes take the position. Their doctor says, well, you're all better now, and you don't need any medical care. And the, claim, and the employee says, well, I'm still hurting. I would like to change to a new doctor. Sure. And that's when, that's the typical dispute, is when a, the physician that has been treating the claimant or the employee says, okay, you're all better, you don't need any more medical care, and the employee says, but I'm still hurting, doc. And the doctor says, well, there's nothing I'm, more I have to offer you. So then the employee has to come to Office of Workers' Compensation and get the permission to change physicians if the employer's insurance company doesn't agree. I gotcha. Is there any sort of neutral and detached physician or group of physicians floating around that can help the hearing examiner, you know, weigh what to do? There used to be. So it used to work. There used to be a, pa a panel in the District of Columbia that you had to you had to select a physician from the panel. They back in nineteen ninety eight they changed that though. Okay. So there is no there is no existing recognized group of physicians for private sector, not talking about government employees, sure. they're, they're a completely different system. But if you're a normal employer, employee in the District of Columbia that doesn't work for the District of Columbia government or the federal government, then you can choose any doctor you want, and you and there are no panels, panel requirements, if, if that's what you're asking. 
It was, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but you have made a distinction that gov- federal government employees and district government employees have either a different system or a different way of going about things than private employees in the district, correct? Well, that's correct. And while our office and agency, the Department of Employment Services and District of Columbia Government, has nothing to has no connection with the federal system, it is very similar to the federal system because the District of Columbia government used to be part of the federal government. Sure. And when it became independent of the federal government with the advent of home rule, they essentially ad- adopted, they didn't adopt the federal law, they created a law which was essentially word for word the same. Prior to that time, they had been they had been covered by something called the Longshore and Harbor Workers Act until the district became independent, or not independent, but uh, home rule came. Gotcha. So there are, in essence... So, so anyway, yes. the, the District of Columbia employees are, are covered by a different law, which had a different predecessor act, which was the law that covered federal employees. The Longshore Act did not cover federal employees. The Longshore Act was a federal workers' compensation statute, but it applied to places, the navigable waters and uh, injuries occurring to employees in navigable waters within the United States. Stevedores and the like, right? Stevedores and the like, yes. And so that's that's the predecessor act for private employers in the District of Employees in the District of Columbia. The predecessor act for Federal employee for District of Columbia employees is the Federal Workers' Compensation Act, Federal Employees' Compensation Act, or FECA, and it's it's different. So so the District of Columbia government employees are under a different workers' compensation law than private sector. We do both, but we don't do federal. I understand. Do you think that's a little bit unwieldy that the District of Columbia employees and private employees in the District of Columbia have sort of separate rules or systems? Well, that's very interesting. It, it is. It does make adjudication from both the lawyer's side of it and the judge's side of it somewhat more complicated. We have, over the years, tried to interpret the the two statutes so that they come out the same way most of the time. Okay. And the Court of Appeals has said that that's, that's a good approach for us to take. That is, we, you know, if there's no reason to treat, if, if the cases can be treated the same way, regardless of the different language of the statute, then treating them the same way is, is, the, is the way to go. But sometimes that doesn't work out. That's particularly noteworthy in cases, for example, psychological injuries. Interesting you should bring that point up, because I understand there is some new and, and important law on that subject in the district. Well, it's, it's, actually, it's about four years old now, but... Uh, if I, if I perceive that, that to be new. Yeah, okay. There are, well, psychological injuries fall into two categories. They're referred to in the law and have been for a long time, and I, I don't like the, the terms, but this is what we use. They are called physical slash mental cases and mental slash mental cases. A physical slash mental case is a standard, a case where you, you sustain an injury under circumstances that are you know, so egregious that you may develop a psychological uh, PTSD or something. So I lose uh, an arm and I develop PTSD from the horrors of the totality of it. Right. That's, that's 
compensable because the physical injury led to the mental injury and the physical injury was compensable and then there's that's never been controversial. It's, it's the mental stress cases that have been controversial. And in the ever since I started practicing law until uh, about three years ago, we had something called the objective tests or the 3M versus daily was the name of the case. Okay. And it required that basically the judge determine whether or not the alleged cause of the injury, if it's not from a physical injury, if it's like some sort of stress at work, if the alleged stress at work is such that, and the words are something like, a normal person of average sensibilities would have the potential to have to have suffered the same or similar injury as the injury being claimed, despite, I'm fumbling over myself. What it basically says is that if you're if you're if what what you you're claiming that caused your psychological injury would have the possibility to cause the injury in someone who's not predisposed to psychological injuries in general, then they would be compensable. If, however, it's determined that a normal person of average sensibilities would not have suffered the same type of psychological injury that you suffered or that you're claiming you suffered, it was not compensable. That was that was the way the law worked in the District of Columbia for many, many years. But in uh, a few years ago, about four years ago, in a case called McKamey, the court decided that under another aspect of workers' compensation law, the aggravation rule, they, they decided that the objective test actually violated the aggravation rule, which the aggravation rule says that if you have a prior condition, that is aggravated or made worse by your work, then that condition is compensable. So the court said, reasoned that if you are, it doesn't matter if if you if the cause would not have caused a similar reaction in a person without a pre-existing predisposition to suffer psychological injuries. So what that did was that that had widely expanded the number of cases. So basically the question was, the only factual question with respect to those issues, to, to the cases now, a psychological injury case now is, first of all, the ALJ or the judge has to make a determination whether or not the claimed stressor actually existed, I mean, as opposed to being in a function of the, um, the employee's imagination. And secondly, if that is found to the, the condition is found to have existed, whether or not it did in fact cause the psychological reaction. It doesn't matter whether you're unusually sensitive person, thing, if the thing that happened to you would not normally cause emotional injury, if that doesn't matter. Now that may that really broadened the area the level of compensable injuries and so this is getting back to how this got started. You asked about the we were talking about the different laws. Well uh, immediately, within less than a year of the court changing the, getting rid of what's been called the objective test, the D.C. City Council changed the law for its employees, getting rid of the McKamey test and, and making it so that, and, and essentially making all stress-related work claims non-compensable, which is the downside of, of, of great expansion. You Sometimes you risk a an overreaction by the legislature to, and you just get rid of an entire class of cases anywhere. So just, it's actually been the history of where this 
type of thing has happened over the years as you know as courts have and uh, as courts have broadened the compensability of psychological claims many states and many jurisdictions have just gotten rid of stress related claims altogether rather than subject rather than allow employees to recover for psychological for mental mental cases but, but wow. that that's what the district of columbia did but only for its own employers employees it uh so now the law is very different in stress cases if you're a public sector employee or a government employee rather than a private employee a private sector employee they're still compensable under the private sector but they're pretty much been eliminated in the public sector. So it's, has the D.C. Court of Appeals weighed in on that at all? Well, there's nothing for them really to weigh in on unless uh, no one is... I mean, there are potential, I suppose, equal protection claims one might bring. That, that That's above my pay grade, as they say in the military. I'm not... Uh, I've never really thought about it. I mean, I've never really considered at great length whether or not uh, there are... There are equal protection problems with that. I'm sure that there's some smart lawyer out there that will someday take it up. I'm giving it some thought. <laughs> so it sounds as though, well, let me just ask it in this way. Is, is there a significant medical component to private employees' psychological, mental, mental claims, as you say? In other words, does a doctor have to have the opinion that you have unusual susceptibility and you were subject to some stressor that might not create problems for a normal person, but because of your your sensitivity, it, it, you know what I mean? So I guess I'm trying to ask is, how important is the medical aspect of such claims? Well, it's interesting that's a, no, that's a, that you should ask because it is um, mental, mental cases are the only class of cases that the Court of Appeals has specifically said you do need a medical opinion. You need medical evidence to bring the claim, whereas you can bring a claim for a physical injury without any real medical evidence of causation. But the Court of Appeals in McKamey did say that you had to have a medical opinion causally connecting the psychological injury to the work stressor. So that that is, and, and also it's the only class of cases where the Court of Appeals has specifically said that the judges have to make a credibility determination as to the employee's credibility on the stand. So there are some, there are still some special rules for mental mental cases as opposed to physical injury cases. But uh, but it is uh, in answer to your question, yes, medical uh, medical opinion is required. So if I have a mental mental case and i gotta file my claim and i've got to notify my supervisor and i need to get medical care and then i need to ensure that my health care provider has the opinion that whatever stress i received in my private sector job in the district of columbia was the cause of my mental difficulties is that a fair summation that is fair that is true that is that is a fair summation of the status of the law Currently. All right. I would be remiss. We only have a few minutes left and you are an appellate judge and there's been some interesting appellate developments that I, I think get undue attention in, in the media, but maybe don't have quite as much significance. And, and specifically, I'm talking about the the baker in Colorado who evidently was <laughs> maltreated. Right. Masterpiece, uh, Masterpiece Bakery versus, let's see. 
I was, I was just looking at that case this morning. Anyway, yes, so it's the master, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. There we go. Essentially, the, that and the uh, there's another case uh, about the young lady who was being detained as an undocumented alien who sought an abortion, and the Trump administration had implemented a rule that they were not going to facilitate abortions uh, in, for detained immigrants. Anyway, the, the cake case was is being heralded as a victory for the conservative side, but it really doesn't do anything. All it says is what happened in the cake case was that the court decided that the Colorado Human Rights Commission exhibited anti-religious bias in reaching their decision that the cake maker had violated the civil rights laws of Colorado. They did not say that there was anything wrong with the civil rights case, the civil rights law in Colorado. What they said was that this particular, in this particular proceeding, Justice Kennedy wrote that one commissioner later said that religious beliefs had been, quote, used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. And Justice Kennedy and six others on the court felt that that uh, conveyed hostility towards religion. And that, that was, a, so in this particular case, they, they didn't feel that the cake shop got a fair hearing. So they, they threw out the commission's decision that they had violated the gay gentleman's rights. It's interesting that you had Justice Kennedy, who has seemed quite protective of LGBTQ rights in the past. And I did I read portions of the opinion myself, and it did seem like he remained highly protective of those rights and opposed to any kind of discrimination. Yes. And uh, Justice Kagan, in her concurrence, indicated that uh, she referred back to the uh, I forget the name of the case, the 19 the 1968 case, which basically said that you know, you're not allowed to discriminate against uh, blacks in public accommodation. Essentially, it was a barbecue joint that wouldn't serve black people because they said that they didn't like to serve black people and they thought that integration was wrong. Well, that that's very analogous to the current disputes with respect to gay gay people's rights. And so, it's it's as a matter of fact, there is I believe there's a case that's coming up this week that they're going to be hearing. It's a florist case. And oh, I remember. Yeah. The, and the court, the Supreme Court, will be hearing that case this week. So that that's the case to look for to see where the court goes with it. And the other the other case in the um, the pregnancy case, the, all the court did was, and it was not even an opinion, an assigned opinion. It was just a procuring opinion, which means unsigned, in which they just dismissed the order of the, the appellate court. The, of the appellate. Oh yes, I'm, that's right. I'm sorry. What happened was they, they, they in addition. They, in addition to seeking an injunction, uh, they, which is how the woman, the young lady, got the abortion, was while the injunction was uh, in force. They also started a class class action case to protect the rights of other similarly situated young ladies who are being detained in immigration facilities who seek abortion. And this is the ACLU that's pursuing the case, correct? That's correct. That's this is Garza versus Hargan. Right. And, it's, and the underlying civil rights case. The class action is still pending. This, all the court ruled in this case was that this particular order was now moot because the young lady got the abortion, and so and she's since become 18 and is no longer being detained uh, because she's no longer a juvenile, and so she's now she's just now a regular 
supposedly undocumented immigrant, but she's no longer being held in a juvenile facility. So the the dismissal is really has nothing to do with the merits of the case. And again, it's the the class action case is still moving forward in the federal court. So what so, the, the gist of it all is? These are two cases that seem to have gotten a great deal of attention, but actually have surprisingly little legal significance along the future. Right. As a as an appellate judge, I can tell you that uh, neither of these two cases would. Would a, would a judge in, in a similar case follow what the Supreme Court has done in this in these two cases because they're not they don't deal with the substantive law they deal with some they're procedural in nature and uh, and don't uh, do not resolve either of the issues whether that is whether or not the, a teenager in federal custody should be allowed to obtain an abortion or whether or not a private business can discriminate against gay and lesbian transgender people in providing services that they offer to the public in general. Very well. well. I think we've run out of time, but I sincerely appreciate your discourse on the intricacies of workers' compensation law, and I'm also fascinated about your view on the recent Supreme Court cases. Thanks so much for appearing, Judge Russell. Well, thank you for having me, Bob. This Thanks, has been Bob. Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. <laughs>